How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the Backwood Sports Podcast, and uh, it's a nice time to be on here because we're finally having our uh, big breakthrough interview with a guy we've been looking to have on for a little bit here, and um, you know, like I said, just absolutely wild to have him. We're glad to have him on. We have someone who maybe uh, just maybe broke through the mold, someone that was should have been, and not to be mean, should have been a clipboard holder, being a ninth-round pick in the NFL draft, but made his way, uh, pursued everything, did everything he could. Big man, certainly a big man, good pocket quarterback, and uh, a Super Bowl winner for um, one of those teams that really didn't have a shot in the beginning. And uh, we're here welcoming on Big Brad Johnson. How's it going, man? Doing great. Appreciate you guys having me on your show. We'll have a lot of fun here. So, yeah, appreciate it. for sure. Always. I love the backdrop. Big old Super Bowl. That's good. So, <laughs> McGee, how are you doing over there? And, uh, what are you going to welcome on in here with it? Hey, Brad. Dan, thanks for joining us today. Uh, we know you. We know you have a pretty busy schedule. Uh, before we get into everything, can you tell us a little bit about what's going on with you nowadays? Besides all those trick shots I've seen on Instagram with you, um, yeah. yeah. Well, what have you been up to now uh, since retiring and how's the family and all that? Yeah, I re- I retired in I think 2008, and, and when when that happened, um, my body was done. So it was just time to be done with football. I was age 40 somewhere in there, but but I really got. I did not want to get into. Uh, you know, coaching and all that kind of yeah. stuff at the college and professional level. Didn't want to get into broadcasting and those kind of things. So, honestly, I really got into just coaching all my kids' uh, sports all the way through middle school, all the way through high school, and all those kind of things. Went to a couple of state championships and and then uh, involved with a couple of charities with Evelyn Foundation and Beyond All Borders up in Asheville, North Carolina. So, stay busy coaching a lot of kids, help a lot of kids on the side, and just kind of stay busy. That's awesome, man. It sounds like you're uh, maybe more busier than ever in the post of the book career. That's awesome. But, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, we're yeah. hopping right over. Uh, sorry, what? No, no, no. Doing good. Doing oh, things worry. I like sorry. to do. Mickey, what'd you have? Well, yeah, right. Uh, before we get into your NFL career, we know a lot about it. If you ask Hollis, I'm a big basketball guy myself. And, you know, I did my research. Even though you were an All-American football star in high school over in Black Mountain, uh, I know you are also all state for their basketball squad, and you know the NFL as you listed is six five to thirty five. I don't know what you were in high school, but I'm sure it's above the average. Uh, what position did you play in basketball? And was football your first love, or was it something else? No, basketball was my first love. I never missed a day of, of playing basketball from my second grade all the way through my freshman year of college. I loved basketball. That was my, I mean, my childhood dreams of Larry Bird and Chris Mullen and all those kind of guys. North Carolina basketball. That's how I grew up. And um, so, you know, I, 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 football, I was, I was good at throwing a football. I was good at throwing a baseball. But I never really, really worked at it, to be honest with you. And I made All-American in high school, but that, that might have been more potential. In high school, I was, I was all about trying to go to the University of North Carolina and playing for Dean Smith. And, or, and, and my childhood dream, obviously, was to, to play for a guy named Bobby Crimmins. He was the head basketball coach at Georgia Tech at that time. And uh, there was a guy in my high school named Brad Doherty, who was a seven-foot center, All-American, and he kind of set the tone for what was in front of us in our high school. But, you know, I, I kind of grew into football as a late bloomer, and then I had to make a decision at some point, you know, what was going to be my long-term uh, future, and I had to make that decision to go ahead and play, play football. Yeah, and uh, just piggybacking off that, um, like I said, I'll give you your credit. I know you started immediately with the basketball squad, um, I think the first like, 11 games or something, you went 11 and 0 or 12 and 0 maybe. Um, but then your junior year, you didn't uh, start on the football field for the 
Seminoles. Um, until your junior year, you had about six games started. You went four and two. You threw 67% completion percentage. You threw over 1,100 yards and five touchdowns. Very good season. But with that being in, the, in your junior year, did you ever have like a feeling of doubt when you were in college or maybe there wasn't football past college for you or maybe your regrets not sticking with basketball all the way? Yeah, times are different now. When, when, when I was coming through high school, we asked – we would ask – the head coach at that time was Bobby Bowden, the football coach. We had to ask, like, hey, can I be redshirted? Now you're like, hey, can I compete for the job day one as a freshman? It, times have kind of changed, and, you know, the the work your way up, the totem pole, those kind of things are a little bit different now, I think, for kids these days. And um, But, you know, I was redshirted in football, then went ahead and played two years of basketball at Florida State, but I had to make a decision. I was, I was a little bit – football season going so long. Basketball season, we'd go in the NCAA tournament, I'd miss half of spring football. So I was kind of – competing against players in both sports and fighting for my life in both sports so, too. But, but I had was to make a you know, long-term long. Go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry. You no, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to ask, was there something specifically that shifted you to focus on football and say, I want to go to the NFL, I don't want to try to go to the NBA? Yeah. I, and I was, I was a good role player in basketball. I, I mean, scored 2,400 points in high school. I, I mean, that's what I did. I was scoring 25 points a game. You know what I mean? But but at some point, you know, we we had some great players on the basketball team too. Now I ended up being a role player, a, you know, a three-point shooter kind of thing, but just a passer to, to everybody else and went to the NCAAs twice. And it was great. But, you know, I knew I wasn't going to be a pro basketball player. And I knew I had more potential. I really hadn't worked at football. And the guy, the prototypical guy at that time was kind of Vinny Testaverde, who'd won the Heisman at Miami, six foot five, 225 like a Greek God, you know what I mean? With his, <laughs> I mean, he, he still could bench 225 30 times, you know what I mean? But but that was the guy that that, that I wanted to kind of be like at that time, you know? And uh, so I knew I had to make a decision because I was competing in both sports, but I was going to go for it. I had to go for it in football. And that's, that's what I went there on a football scholarship, but I was kind of in between playing both sports and wasn't getting, wasn't going to be reached my full potential by playing both. Yeah, so you bet on yourself, and I think you uh, came out with a win on that. Yeah, you guys. always got to bet on yourself. Always, always. Yeah, for damn sure. That that's that's just awesome. And it, looking at it back and seeing, you know, how much you did in both sports and everything, it just, you know, it speaks volumes and it shows how much, you know, the work ethic, everything you put in. And I feel like, like you said before, nowadays people come in and they kind of just not fall into it, but you have a lot more avenues and you know, there's Instagram. There's all these things to be able to get noticed more and. You know, I feel like sometimes the work ethic isn't, you know, it's not as big of a part as it used to be. Uh, a lot of it can be, I guess, maybe shifted out of it. But I'll roll into this next question, though. This is one I, I was just big on. So you being a ninth-round pick in the draft and everything, and like I said before, most guys being in the later rounds, being clipboard holders, and it's not to be like a bad tag, but just being the guy to, you know, be behind the guy. And who knows if you get the chance, sometimes it's, you know, Drew Bledsoe, you boom, you're in there. Sometimes you're sitting there the entire year and it could be the next season. So being in that spot and being in that pick, how did you feel when that happened? Was it still a feel of excitement or was it kind of the, I got to come here and show them that's not where I should be you know, picked at? Yeah. You, you know, I was a late bloomer. I didn't play that much in college. I only started seven games like we talked about, you know, and I, the work ethic was there, but I was so, so into basketball. I, ne I didn't fully develop in football. And so I was fortunate enough. I went to a place in Minnesota, ninth round pick. I thought I was the, honestly, I thought I was the best quarterback in the draft that year. Honestly. You know what I mean, but 
But the other teams didn't think that. The other GMs didn't think that. They were probably right. I wasn't ready to play. And sometimes guys get thrown into the fire too fast. A Drew Bledsoe, he was ready. A Peyton Manning was ready. Now, I can list you members that weren't ready. They're sitting on the couch after about two years of their career. And I look at Super Bowl champions. Aaron Rodgers sat three years. And Tom Brady, he sat for two years. And Eli Manning sat for six months. And Steve Young sat for a long time. And yep. uh, Brett Favre, he sat for a year and a half. We can go through the whole list of all yeah, the Super Bowl champions that kind of sat. You sat yeah. and you made your way in and, and you learned yeah. the process and the, and the team exactly you were with and the system. And, I mean, yeah, it's yeah, a way to grow, but I think a lot of guys, especially with the college, I wouldn't say it's nearer to the NFL, but it's a lot more catered to the NFL nowadays and it makes it easier transition. Yeah, the, the game has changed. The game is kids are, kids are more ready to play now. Uh, they're doing it in middle school. They're running check with me systems, but I think I was the last quarterback that ever took every snap in the professional NFL league underneath, underneath center in 2003. So guys now, they don't know how to take a snap from underneath center, but they're doing football year round. They're in check with me systems in middle school. They're playing all the Madden football games. Uh, yeah. You kind of see real plays. You get to see, you know, several seven leagues. It's year round almost. And so guys are developed faster now, but going back to my first year in Minnesota, listen, I was grateful to be drafted, grateful to be on a team. I was behind Rich Gannon and Sean Salisbury and Wade Wilson was there. It took me time. And then the next year was Jim McMahon and then Warren Moon came in. But yeah, I, I was just grateful for any rep that I could get and grateful for they gave me time to develop. And that was the greatness of, you know, Minnesota Vikings and Denny Green at that time. Yeah, for sure. And with those names, Warren Moon and Gannon, you know, is there a guy out of those kind of an improv question, but is there any guys out of those that really helped you propel going into the NFL and learning more exactly? Yeah, you know, it's an interesting thing. I don't believe in the word mentor kind of thing. I believe in a working together relationship. And when I first got there as a rookie with Rich Gannon, like, you know, I was way behind as far as just like learning the system, how to call the plays. And it was just a lot to take in as a a rookie for any rookie. And so I just, I I remember watching Rich and, and just like, man, he was a tough guy, always prepared. Um, respected by all his teammates. And then Jim McMahon came in. I was like, man, there's a, there's a lot of different ways to skin a cat. He can win yeah. ball games in a lot of different ways. He's a great leader in his own way. And then, and then I kind of, kind of got developed, but then I actually grew a lot with Warren Moon, just how he handled the huddle, how he handled success with touchdown passes, interceptions, a win, a loss, how he dealt with the media after those different scenarios and those things, kind of things. So I think Warren Moon kind of rubbed off on me the most at that time of my development. Okay. I was going to say, I mean, I, the only thing, I mean, I've, I've watched a lot of old clips and everything, and I, I guess the one, it, it shouldn't be the one that I remember him most for, but my dad has this old, you know, cassette tape of the uh, greatest NFL comebacks, and we all know who's number one on that list was Warren Moon on the wrong side of it with the Bills and Steve Christie with that sweet old right. kick. But, um, I mean, like you said, yeah. even in that game, you noticed his mannerisms and stuff on the sideline. He was never a quarterback, and I always I always worked with like Tom Brady since I'm a big Patriots fan. He's a guy that never gets down. He may get fired up and try and get everyone going, but he's not going to get down and talk in, in the wrong way, should I say, and, and you know get everybody off page. He's always trying to keep yeah. going in the right direction. Yeah, and, and listen, when you play long enough, you're going to be a part of a lot of great stats, and you're going to be a lot of part of a lot of bad stats. It just oh, it sure. is what it is, and. And, and the media, social media part of it, it's really funny the perception people get just by watching TV or interviews. Like, 
I don't know if you really know who the guy is or who the huddle is that those group yeah. of guys are playing with. So it's funny what okay. people want, you know, those kind of things. But, man, Warren Moon is a Hall of Famer and great respect and what he was able to accomplish. And I think the way kind of obviously in transition when I took over, he got hurt and I was in the contract year and those kind of things. And just the respect that he had for me and the way he always dealt with things with first class. So those are the kind of things I tried to implement uh, later in my career when things happened, when I'd have a young quarterback or things took place that I didn't like, just kind of deal with adversity. Uh, th those kind of the mannerisms kind of rubbed off of me that I try to pass on that Warren Moon gave to me. Definitely. And that's definitely, like I said before, what's so old Brady thing. It's not always, sometimes it's a little rocky of a road when that has to happen and that if injury, what it is transition, but at least to handle it well in the forefront, especially to the media, that's usually the biggest thing. And at least if, if you can put the face on and do what you can for the day and get by for the team, that's it's what's best for the team and best for everyone moving forward. So it definitely makes sense. Um, McGee, what do you have next over here for that 94? Yeah, man, we're going to kick it back to the when you were drafted. You stepped on the field for the first time in 94 for the Vikings. You weren't on that long. You threw three for three in the day, but hey, it's 100%. But more importantly, you took your first steps and you took your first snaps on the football field. What did it feel like sitting on the field for the first time? What did it feel like your dreams were accomplished at that moment? I tell people never take a play for granted. And one of my very first snaps I ever took, um, it was a Monday night game. Um, the game was over 11:45 at night. Warren Moon was the starting quarterback, and I came in for like one play, and I took a, I took a knee. You know the victory play, and people just take that play for granted. But everybody back in my hometown in North Carolina, they were like they watched it. They're like that's your first play. Like it's so, so hard to make it to that level. And I'm talking about taking a victory, taking a kneel down, you know what I mean? And so it's, it's pretty, pretty incredible to get that experience, become a pro player, and then complete my verse pass, double right, scat right, H angle drag, you know? And I remember that I was like, God, it's, it's incredible. And then the one pass that leads on to the next pass and through my very first touchdown pass to Chris Carter, change right, base right, 086, F flat and caught him on a post route. So, those first, those first snaps, those first first time pass, first completion, first time seeing your uniform in your locker with your name on it, like, man, it's it's magical. That's that's what you dream of, and then you kind of live that dream. You kind of get over those, you know, little moments, but then, you know, but those are great memories to have, you know. For sure, definitely. That's that's one of those things where you know, as a kid, you probably growing up, like, like you said, the locker and everything, everything set up, whatnot. You envision it, and then to see it in front of you, it's like, all right, now I go get it. Yeah, for sure. And then um, we also dive over here next, though. This is one where we skip it over, I think, to 95 it is. Um, you go over there to the Euro League, and this is one where I just, as a kid, I obviously grew up, I was born in 94, so I never saw you play in it, but I did see the records later on, and I always watched the Euro Leagues in the summer when I was a kid. I loved watching them a ton. And you went over to the Monarchs and uh, really tossed that ball around and led the league in, uh, I'm pretty sure it was completions, uh, completion yardage. So, you know, do you think going over there catered you to come back to the NFL and have a better understanding or at least a different perspective that you may not have had before? Yeah, up to that point, I really hadn't. I didn't play much in college. My first three or four years in the league, I didn't really play much there either besides practice and training camp reps and so those kind of things. But that was a league that it, it kind of went – it got 
it got it, it started up in the late 80s then it went away they came back and so i was looking for an opportunity to just go play and it was yeah. different there were only 38 players on the team eight foreigners were on the team one of them had to be on the field at all times uh yeah. so you played 10 game season and i needed to go make plays i needed to go make mistakes be a leader of a team deal with all those things of being you know the quarterback and so you had to go learn a new system which the greatness of that was I'd already been in Minnesota system for three or four years. So I didn't, wasn't like I was learning that one, had to go learn another one and come back. It was like already knew one and then had to go learn this one in, in, in London in the world league. So very valuable experience for me. I worked out great for Kurt Warner and John Kidna and Jay Fiedler and some other quarterbacks. It doesn't work out great for everybody, but it was a bold move that I made in my career at that time. And very fortunate that, you know, that league came back out just to give me game reps. Yeah, exactly. And I always say it was like that perfect buffer thing in the summer. And when I watched, I think it was Walter Payton's son was over there in the Admirals, and he was with Kirk Warner at the time. And I mean, just watching it, to me, it was almost silly seeing Kirk Warner playing over there with those people. And I know he wasn't what he is today at the time, but you could tell he was definitely a man, uh, man among the boys out there. And for all the guys over there that have, you know, the patch on the jersey and stuff and know what team they're on back home, it was pretty cool to see some of them shine and then be able to come back. And even if they're a practice squad, eventually make their way up to that roster and really make a difference. Cause I think a lot of people, it, it does help because they get into that off season. And you said before nowadays, there's a lot of guys that go through and do, you know, seven on sevens and do a bunch of workouts together, but there is nothing like strapping it up and really getting after it like that. And I think that league helped a lot of people out. Yeah, there's no yeah, doubt so, about it. I mean, that, that league, I mean, Kurt was a stud at every level he played at. And, but, you know, we were kind of young at the time, just needed a chance to play. And, the, you know, it wasn't your same plays that you're running in the pros now. It was, it was a little bit different environment. But, but at the end of the day, you're just playing ball. And that was, that was key for all of us. Yeah, exactly. And I kind of find it funny because I, I did my one year in arena football. It was a small-time arena league. But seeing Kurt Warner and a lot of other guys that have gone through, and then they have uh, was Antonio Brown's father, had been a big name in the in the league as well over there. It's I'll say one thing: it's a different animal jumping in between those walls and having half the field to deal with because it's uh, everything comes at you a little faster, I should say, and the routes have to be a lot more crisp. Not that they're no not doubt. the NFL, but it is it is on a dime. <laughs> That's yeah, sure. no doubt. Yeah, yeah. And it's great to see you got all those takeaways and experience uh, from that spring or summer. A year early, and meanwhile, you said you're returning back to Minnesota. And we're kicking into '96 season opener. Like you're saying Warren Moon, you're replacing with an he had an injury, he had an ankle injury around halftime. Uh, he also wasn't throwing the best that game, so he got benched. You started the second half. Uh, you throw a 31-yard touchdown to Chris Carter for your first NFL touchdown pass. Um, then you finished the half going six for 23 with almost 160 yards and the win. How did it feel getting your first NFL touchdown? And it had to feel topping it off in the win also. It was an incredible um, seven-day period, to be honest with you, 14-day period. So by that, the last preseason game, I actually had a really good preseason game, uh, preseason, but the last preseason game, we played the Saints, and I threw four interceptions in a preseason game in the second half. I was 20 for 25 for 230 yards and four picks. They all happened in the red zone, and I actually thought I was going to get cut the next day. And uh, they kept me. And then the very first game of the season, Warren Moon, he got hurt, he had high ankle sprains. And so I came in the game. We won the game through a game-winning touchdown we talked about with Chris Carter. And then the very next week I started and then was the NFC Player of the Week. 
and uh, beat the Atlanta Falcons. And that year I led the red zone efficiency in the NFL. And, and so it went from extreme almost being cut <laughs> and then getting an opportunity, which is so hard to get, and then taking off with it. And it took, you know, obviously one got hurt and those kind of things, or otherwise you would have never seen me. But it was a, it was a, it was a wild experience for me and grateful for that opportunity when it did happen. My favorite target was the guy that was always open. It seemed like Chris Carter was open a lot. You know, okay. he had great hands and obviously a Hall of Famer. But yeah, you're just thankful for any opportunities you get. And then it's so hard to get a, a first down. It's so hard to win a score a touchdown. It's so hard to win a game. And then it's so hard to make the to make the playoffs. Like people just take it for granted sometimes. I mean, there's a lot of great players, a lot of great games. It's a long season, and so you know to lead the to lead the organization in there was pretty awesome. So. Uh, So we get over here next to this next question. This one I've, I've really uh, been waiting to ask because we saw it and watched it a couple times and uh, amazed is just the least I can say. So it's week seven of the 97 regular season. Carolina Panthers, it's third and goal, three yard line with 14, 18 left on the clock in the fourth quarter. Do you remember that play? And if you do, can you take us through that absolutely wild sequence that happened? And to know you were the first to ever do it. Right, right. It was, yeah, touchdown pass, touchdown catch to myself. And basically the play was called dot left spear rip Dallas. And it was a stick flat by the tight end with a guy in the flat. And I dropped back, I looked to my left, and then the ball got batted up and it came back to me. And so a lot of times you're taught to knock the ball down when that happens because it can get intercepted or you lose yardage back. Yeah. I knew at that time we'd catch it. We could, we're still in field goal range. So I, I got it. Another thing is you cannot throw two forward passes. So the ball came back to me, and I kind of juked a couple guys out and then scored the touchdown. And then it was really wild because we didn't know what really had taken place. I mean, it was, it was a touchdown. It was a pass. It was a catch. It was a completion. It was a score. It was like, what just what was it? You know what I mean? So yeah. after the game, they said it counted. It was, it was the first time it had ever been done. There's 12 points in fantasy football that won the – um, uh, want to ask for play of the year kind of thing. So it's just really cool to be a part of. And, and um, so just looking back that, you know, people, that's, that's a great memory to have. It was a key play at the time, but looking back, it was just a cool play that, you know, to be the first one to ever do it. Pretty cool. Yeah, exactly. And everyone, when they saw Mariota do it in the playoffs to himself, I think that was against the Chiefs a couple of years back there, like 18 or something. Uh, everyone went wild about it, but they could not miss to remember and then mention and show as well your touchdown, which I'm going to say right now, Marcus Mariota has the legs to do it. So I think it was a lot more impressive to see you get, especially being behind the line still and everything with the play, you weren't even that close to the goal line and making your way there. That was just such an awesome play to see. So I, I just love that one. Yeah. With Mariota, he was right at the goal line on the half. He, he went through the whole backfield and yeah. he ran by. We had to be at least six other guys. And 
as you're going running back mode and really put, you know, yeah. that up. <laughs> yeah, his his was easy, no doubt about that. Mine was tough. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> but uh, staying in that uh, in that year '97. Um, with the Vikings, that was, that was arguably your best year with Minnesota before your neck injury um, that took you out. Uh, with 12 games started that year, you helped bring the team to an 8-4 and four record, which is including a 16 win streak. Uh, you were also on a personal streak of 15 consecutive games with a touchdown pass thrown, which is a Vikings team record, and you also went 109 consecutive passes without an interception. Uh, great features there. But looking at that season and comparing it, to your 99 season with, but at the time, the Redskins and now the Commanders, um, you went 10 and 6 with them in 99. You had over 4,000 yards, over 300 completions, 24 touchdowns, and you had a pass rating of 90. Those are all career highs for you. And that's also, like you said, including two NFC Player of the Week awards, one being a 21 0 comeback victory against the Commanders. Um, so between those two seasons, which do you think was the best version of you? And what made everything start clicking in those two, three years? Well, I had a great year. felt like I, every time I played, but we, I dealt with injuries there at the very end of the year. So I wasn't able to finish the year with, with, a, with a neck injury with, with the Vikings. And I lost all my hand strength from my, from my elbow down. Like I couldn't pick up, you know, ro- remote control. I, I had no strength in my hand. So making the comeback that year was I, – I didn't know if I'd ever be able to play again, to be honest with you, with the neck injury. So, But it was really – cool going to Washington. I've been in the system for seven years in Minnesota. I had to go to a new system with North Turner. Love playing for him. Love playing for the, you know, the Redskins at that time. And and uh, they had not been to the playoffs in a long time. So it really kind of got to become my team. Um, you know, the quarterback there and won the division. It was just a fun, fun time. And uh, even though we, I think we won, uh, we won our first playoff game against Detroit, which was pretty cool and got beat by Tampa later on, but it was just a fun time for all of us as players, no-name players, and, and for me as a quarterback to take over a team like that. So the numbers are a little bit different now. You know, the rules have kind of changed. The guys are throwing a lot more yards and those kind of things. But but it hit the 4,000 mark at that time was, was pretty cool. Yeah, 4,000 at that time was a hell of a lot more yards than what most guys are doing. Like, that was a real club to be in at that time. Now it just seems like some guys are hitting 4,000 and they're – I mean – I always say it this way, some of your worst teams sometimes are the ones that are just because they're always behind or passing all the time. So you have the yardage yeah. there, but it's not the same production, I guess is how I put it. They are. And, and 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 that's great that you say that. Like a guy that never gets credit to me and he's Hall of Fame players, Troy Eggman. Like Troy is incredible, incredible quarterback. And but he didn't throw for as much yards as people want. He'd go 20 for 24 to, for one touchdown and 180 yards. But then a lot of times yeah. he didn't get the easy touchdowns or easy yards or a lot of yards because they, they were winning or, or they didn't get the easy touchdowns because Emma Smith got those, the, the red zone touchdowns. So yeah. numbers can be kind of fooled around a lot of different ways, but, but, you know, now it's kind of crazy with, you see high school kids throwing for 4,000 yards and quarterbacks yeah, exactly. now in the NFL throwing for 5,000. It, it's crazy. The numbers are, but it's fun to watch the evolution of, the, of quarterback play. I think it's gotten much better. And obviously systems have too. Yeah, for sure. That's definitely. Yeah, and speaking from jumping from team to team and going into your free agency decisions and stuff like that, uh, before you, before rejoining your old assistant coach, Tony Dungy, in Tampa Bay in 2001, you reportedly almost joined your previous offensive coordinator, Brian Billing, in Baltimore. Uh, how much of an effect did your coaching setup have on your free agency decisions? Yeah, I, I've been with Brian Billick for seven years in Minnesota, and great friendship, great respect, and then 
actually, when I got traded to Washington, I was hoping to get traded to Baltimore and it just didn't happen. So I became a free agent and I was, it was looking like I was going to go to Baltimore, but two things happened, to be honest with you. One, the, the contract was more secure in Tampa. And so that was a better feeling for me in my situation at that time. And two, Tampa had never won a Super Bowl. They just won the Super Bowl with, with Trent Dilfer. And so it's kind of like, it's a sequel. I wanted to be the first one to have ever done it for a franchise at that time. I felt like it was a great fit in Tampa for my skill set. And I think both of them would have been great, great fits. But uh, Tampa just felt like it was the right one. Uh, going back to Florida, uh, Tony Dungy, I'd had, I'd, I was with him for three years in Minnesota. So there's a lot of great respect with, with him. And I knew there's a lot of guys on the team there at Tampa, too. And I played against them all a bunch. And so it had been in Washington. So just a lot of great respect. And just it was, it was a, you know, an easy transition for me. They definitely, um, I say they definitely changed the game with that Tampa too and come uh, rolling that out and really, I, I just say changing the game on the defensive side and how they did that all. But um, part two to that also, talking a little about Baltimore and you said Trent Dilfer and his Super Bowl win. Now, you think it's never to be, you know, mean to a quarterback or any person in a game. I always viewed Trent Dilfer more or less as a game manager. I kind of always tagged like, we'll say Peyton Manning in his last year when he just didn't have the same arm strength and everything. Um, you kind of had to manage what you did, ran the ball when you could, made the throws here and there to, you know, dice up defenses still. Do you think you could have stepped into Baltimore that next year, though, if you did do so and repeat as well with them? You don't know. You don't know. I mean, I listen, <laughs> a lot of great quarterbacks. A lot of great quarterbacks that never get to that game. It's hard to get to that game. Very and it's so. hard to win that game when you get to that game. And a lot of different ways to do it. I mean, you know, I mean, Bob Greasy had one year where he only played two games and won a Super Bowl. Yep. You know, played the first game of the season and then the Super Bowl. And, and, and uh, you know, Doug Williams played five games and Joe Thousand played seven games in a, in a, in a breakout year. And uh, Jeff Hostetler played five games. So, I mean, it's hard to play, to be the quarterback, like what Trent did the whole season exactly. and what I did the whole season. And it's really hard to get there. And so, you know, rating quarterbacks, did you, you know, how good were you? Were you the best or the worst? Like, dude, if you're an NFL quarterback, you're probably pretty legit. If you win a Super Bowl, exactly. it's pretty, it just doesn't happen. And so, you know, I, I felt like I had to make the right choice for me at my time of my, of, of my career uh, financially. I felt like it was a more secure contract. And I just felt like, the best fit for me in the end was going to be in Tampa. Definitely. And I mean, Hey, looking back on it, it was easily the best choice because you guys made it and you did as, you know, as low as you could and everything in that Super Bowl win. And like I always say, it's never to be mean or nothing, but those old cream sickle uniforms back in those nineties. I mean, a lot of people want to forget about those because of how bad a lot of those years were, but you came up in there in 2002 and I got to ask, a lot of teams talk about the field going in. And I know nowadays a lot of guys are, you know, with the media, everything, it's more hyped up and you know, we have all these stars, whatnot. But how did you feel? I mean, you guys had Warren Sapp. You had all the guys. I'm pretty sure Keyshawn was on that team as well. I mean, you really had a team that was ready to go. And was there that feel in OTAs and going into the season that you really had something special there? Or did it really come about, you know, going through OTAs and through into the season? Yeah, when, when you win a championship, there's probably a lot of great players, a lot of great coaches, you know? Yeah. And just, just from my coach's standpoint, we had, um, had Jay Gruden on there who went on to be a head coach. You had 
Uh, Rod Marinelli, who was a head coach. Mike Tomlin, who went and won a Super Bowl, was a head coach. Raheem Morris was a head coach. Rich Versace was a head coach. These were the assistants at the time. Oh, Kyle Rich Shanahan. Shout out. He is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So all these great coaches. And then we had, obviously, we had Hall of Fame players and John Lynch and Derek Brooks and Warren Satin. Hopefully, Rondé Barber and Simeon Rice make it. But oh, yeah. The team was loaded in a lot of different ways. A lot of game changers on that defense. Yeah. And, but offensively, we had a lot of great players too. And John Gruden made a lot of moves in free agency. You kind of saw it with Tom Brady last year. They, they made, they made 10 moves in free agency. I think we made 15 moves in free agency. You saw it with the Rams this past year, what they deal with Matthew Stafford and uh, Beckham and all the above. So, but it takes, you got to get hot at the right time. You got to have a great team and then you just got to be able to come through in the clutch. And so, Gruden, he came in, he made he made practice tough, he inspired us, he challenged us. And we were three and one every four games of the season. We ended up 12 and four and, and just kind of just competed every day in practice. It wasn't always the Super Bowl was in right, was in, you know, was in it was there in front of us, but we never talked about it. We just talked about how good can we beat the deck in practice. Exactly. Let's win this week. And that's kind of the approach we took. And, and but at that time, none of us had won big in the playoffs. And we've been close, but hadn't done it. And so that was the – we all knew we had to do it at that time for, you know, to validate some of our careers and what we wanted to accomplish. For sure. It was, it was just that unspoken goal that everybody – I mean, no matter what any team at the beginning of the day, you go into the season working for that goal. But it was just that kind of unspoken thing you knew you had to do. Um, and piggybacking off of that as well, I mean, you, you said it yourself, you know, the coach pushed you, Gruden was on top, you guys making sure. And there's always reports and – being up in New England, everybody always talks about big, bad Belichick and, you know, how bad he is and mean. And, you, you know, if you want to have fun, you go somewhere else. Well, to me, it seems like the winning formula, I'm sorry, you got to be kind of an ass. And you got to really push your players and you got to, you know, shove them in the mud, do what you got to do, you know, teach them the lessons to make sure that they know what it is going forward and how far of a road and how much you got to push them. So how was it with John Gruden there? And, you know, do you think he – Obviously, I think he prepared you guys well enough, but did you like in everything the style of coaching and how he went about it? Yeah, there's a lot of different ways to approach it as a head coach. Sometimes you have a CEO coach. Sometimes you have a, a defensive head coach and helps on the defensive side more than you have. And John Groove is obviously an offensive-minded uh, offensive coach. So, But I, I think he was a great – You know, we made a bunch of moves in free agency now, bringing in Ken Dilger and Ricky Dudley and Joe Jarevicius and Keenan McCardell and Robin Oban and Kerry Jenkins and Michael Pittman. I mean, we brought in a bunch of players that were kind of all role players, all veteran kind of guys that, that was the right fit. So it was the right timing for us in our career, uh, for all of us to play with each other and with Gruden. Love playing for Gruden for me because he's an offensive head coach. Spent most of my time with him. You know, he did meetings. He did the installation. He did the walkthroughs. He wasn't a guy that just like, hear the plays and go work on the game plan in, in a different office. And a lot of times you do find that. But with him, he was, you were with him at all day, all day long. You agreed or disagreed on the yeah. plays that you were going to run that week. I love playing for him. It was, it was a fun time. Uh, it was very impactful in my career. For sure. And being a guy that's all hands in like that and isn't delegating, I think as a player, you probably understand, like, he wants it as bad as we want it. It's not, you know, without delegating stuff around you, he's, he's that invested. And it's always good to see it. It's, I guess I'd say it's easier to play for a coach and or any system like that where they're that involved in more Yeah, and, and it's, it's good to have someone like that you can put your trust in and you know that they're there for you and you know they know what they're doing. So it's always good to have someone to rely on like that. And sticking with your Super Bowl winning season, um, was there any 
think maybe off the field that helped you guys play because we see a lot of team chemistry, we see guys hanging out off the field, getting dinner, or going to events, you can do Bible studies and stuff like that. Was there an off the field chemistry that helped you guys play even more than just the natural talent? And if so, do you think that's essential to winning a Super Bowl? Uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of guys go out to dinners and those kind of things. And, but you know, the other part, we also had families, too. So it's not like your college buddies going out on Mondays and Friday nights as, as much as, you, you know, back in the day. But, but I just remember guys that love football, uh, competed on Sundays. It meant something to them. Um, have gone on being successful people after their careers have been over. Smart guys. Um, I mean, you get a John Lynch, now he's a general manager, you know, of a 49ers and those kind of things. You see a lot of those guys now, they become on TV doing talk shows and, and those things. So it's pretty neat to be with those. You want to be with those kind of guys that love, love what they do and want to be great at what they do. And we all came together to do it. A great story it was. Yeah, definitely. John Lynch, one of those guys where I, I wish my Patriots went and picked him up in that last free agency stint. Maybe he stuck around a little bit. It was nice seeing him fly around preseason, but – you could tell it might not have been that long. <laughs> yeah, he was he was done at that time, so he'd tell you the same thing. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> he'd already made enough tackles. Yeah, yeah. So so far at that point, you're great. You've had a pretty good, successful journey, and then um, kind of more towards the tail end of your career, you did make a return to Minnesota in 2005. But the Vikings, they were not your first choice in agency. Can you talk us through those two teams that or more that you wanted to go to and? kind of your thought process of, you know, why they chose some other guys over you or kind of what you were feeling in that whole situation before. Yeah, there, there were three or four teams I was looking at in free agency. I went to uh, Miami. I threw for Nick Saban that time. I went to Seattle. Uh, they had Matt Hasselback as a starter. I went to, um, I think, Chicago. And it was Minnesota. I think those were schools. And maybe Detroit was in there, too. I can't remember. But I, at that time in my career, I was, I was hitting 38 years old. Um, I wasn't going to be the starter at that point. And so I'm like, where can I go? Where can I be comfortable? I knew the head coach and Mike Tice. We'd actually played together. Dante Culpepper was the starter. And um, I knew the system. It wasn't like I had to go learn a whole new system all over again. And those things are hard to do. I knew the city of Minnesota, you know, uh, Minneapolis and those kind of things, just how to get around. So at that time I had, we had my wife, Nikki and I, we had two boys and like, what's the most comfortable situation and what's a good team that I could be a part of in case I needed to play. And so I went in there as a backup, and that was kind of my role at that time. And then eventually Dante Culpepper, he got hurt, and then I, I ended up taking over. So it was a smooth transition from all of those that from that decision-making. At that point, you a lot of guys do the same thing. You know, they focus on the family. What's best for my current situation? You know, I already got the bag. I got paid. You know, I got the Super Bowl. Let's focus on uh, setting up the future for my family. It's hard when you move. It's hard for guys like you just see, you know, transactions like, okay, he's going here. He's going, well, it's, it's hard. You got to, you got to, you have a house, you got to sell your house. You got to go find a new place to live. You got to get, you know, how, what's your transportation? What is your, get your kids in school, uh, learn a new playbook, learn new guys in the organization. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's harder than people think just to pick up and leave especially when you have a family and uh, those, you know, you got to, you got to admire those guys that can do that and, and then have the family support that will, they can deal with that. They can pick up and go. So it's, it's a, it's a, it's, it's part of the business and uh, everyone has to deal with it, but it's a lot harder than people think sometimes. 
Um, I was going to ask you too a little uh, little pop up question here. Uh, how did it feel being able to when you came back to Minnesota? Uh, maybe I forget the exact play name. I did see it the other day, but pop over that first touchdown over the top to Randy Moss. That's uh, you know him being a Hall of Famer and, and having such a story career, basically from the jump. Yeah, I did. I, I was kind of I was part of some unique plays. Uh, obviously, I threw the first touchdown pass and catch to myself. I threw the 100th touchdown pass to Chris Carter and uh, Tim Brown. I uh, threw Warren Sapp, his first touchdown pass, but also threw Randy Moss's first touchdown pass, too, which is Hall of Fame, one of the best D-ball threats ever in the history of the game. And the play was uh, his first two touchdowns were change right, base right, uh, change right, speed right, uh, speed right bomb. His next play was train right, jet right, 748 Y shallow. And But but Randy was a great, great competitor. We'd all seen that when he was at, at uh, University of Marshall. All the highlights. He's a Fred, Fred Belitnikoff award winner. And he's six foot four to run like a deer. <laughs> Great competitor. And uh, so I just, it's pretty, you, you can never out throw Randy Moss. You know what I mean? If he put up his hand, he, oh, yeah. he's going by somebody. He always told me, I've never run a full speed unless it's uh, Deion Sanders, uh, Daryl Green, or Dale Carter. Other than that, I'm <laughs> setting him up and just throw it as far as you can. Yeah, that's for sure. And like you said, like a deer, man, he, even seeing when he was in New England, he might have been on those, you know, the back nine, but he still had the legs to just absolutely burn almost anybody in the way. It, it really didn't matter who was there. And it was funny you say, as soon as he threw the hand up, the ball's in the air. And, and even if you had to give a little more gas, the other guy probably wasn't able to have that much more gas to give to get to him because he would separate like on a matter of a point of a second. And it was just, it was awesome to see it in person because I had tickets for most of those years. And to see him yep. just absolutely dice up defenses and at times get in between in the middle, there was nobody that could catch him. And especially with that size, he just really separated himself from everybody pretty easily. Yeah. Yeah. There's no doubt. I mean, that's what you remember. When he throws a hand up, he's going by you. And then, you know, everybody sees it on Monday night, the, the thing of you got mossed. You know what I mean? So yeah. he, he mossed a lot of guys. Uh, he could jump over people and could, you know, adjust to the ball. He's, he's a special player, obviously. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And like I said, right from the jump, I mean, that first touchdown and rolling through, he just made a lot of defenders look pretty silly, you know, jumping in, especially there's one I always refer to with the Patriots back um, against the Dolphins down in Miami, where he had three guys on him, turns around and just uses his elbow basically to catch the ball and reel it in. And it's like, sometimes it doesn't matter how hard you try, it's, it's Randy Moss on the other end of that ball. <laughs> so, no doubt. Yeah. No doubt. Yeah, and I know Talent runs in the bloodline. We saw your son just transfer to Texas A&M. Can you tell us about how he's progressed and his play style? And uh, do you think it's different or similar to how you play? Yeah, I actually have two boys uh, that are Texas A&M. My youngest son, Jake, he's a tight end. Uh, he was All-American uh, in high school. And then uh, he just he's early enrolling at Texas A&M. And Max, he's uh, in his third year in, in school. Uh, he was at LSU these first two years and was in the transfer portal. Just had to pick a place where he thought he could be, uh, they could win it, you know, on the highest level, hopefully win a national championship and then be coached and then and want to be, want to play for Jimbo. You know, that was kind of the way it went down. So, but Max, he's, a, he's he wears the number 14, uh, just like I did. I don't know why that is, but, <laughs> but he's left-handed. He's left-handed uh, kid and I'm right-handed. And, um, you know, all his life he learned how to play from underneath center. So all the play fakes, uh, the pro game, it kind of fits his style, to be honest with you, especially from underneath center. And then 
got a strong arm. He can get up and dunk it any way he wants to and those kind of things. But he's looking, he's in competition right now, uh, trying to earn the spot there at Texas A&M. And then, uh, but just grateful for that opportunity. That's awesome. That's a luck to them. Yeah, for sure. And, and with you were saying, um, you teach him, you know, a lot of, I say the old tricks in the bag there, but being under center and learning all those little tips and stuff, do you think that's going to, more, I mean, I would say more or less winning the job, but do you think that's going to separate him and really show, especially with a lot of, you know, just rooted coaches in these leagues, especially college, do you think they're going to notice that real fast and be like, this guy's going to yeah. progress a lot faster than the others? Yeah, I, th- I think uh, Max is about 6'5", 220, quarterback. Um, can anticipate, can throw guys open. Um, I think the biggest thing for quarterbacks uh, honestly, is, is understanding your protections and then being able to get through your progressions. So some coaches, they're just RPO coaches, you know, fake it and then yeah. throw to the one guy. Some guys can call. They just only give you one side of the field to read. Some coaches, they can give you the whole field to read. So Max is a kid. He can dissect it pretty fast and get through it and understands his protections. And then just you want to be surrounded with great players and a chance to win. And so I think it's a great fit for him being at, uh, with Jimbo there at Texas A&M and just looking forward to him progressing as a player and then, and then just going through the college experience too. That's a big deal. Uh, not just, just all ball. Yeah. And I kind of feel like with you saying there, that whole point, it's, um, I guess watching people like Brady and, you know, other people with great quarterback status that it's not to say people that don't aren't stand up quarterback in the pocket guys aren't always, you know, the top guy, but when you see people, you know, that maybe do a little extra and like Lamar Jackson, RPO guys like that, um, at times it looks a little improv. And I think that's kind of that mainstay is at the end of the day, a lot of the pocket passers being able to read the field, being able to be stable, calm, collected, everything in the pocket is going to lead you through those big hard moments, especially the ones where maybe it's not going right all game, but then you can turn it on and turn the jets on and really go as opposed to when you're doing, like you said, you don't read the whole field, you're reading one side or you're really just going this or this. And when they're both not there, you know, what is it? It's like, you know, swear with that moment. You don't know what to do. So yep. I kind of feel like that separates a lot of the guys in the playoffs and maybe just maybe why a lot of those RPO guys don't see the Super Bowl or at least don't see the ring itself. You are 100% right there, my friend. It's, it's, listen, like listen, you. defense, <laughs> defense, court, defense coordinators, they hate facing, you know, the, the, the kid that can run around and make plays. It's, 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 it's like, how are we going to stop it? Those, yeah. it, it keeps coordinators up all night long. But as a coach, at the end of the day, you want a guy that can make plays when things break down. But at the end of the day, you want to know that you're going to take care of the ball and you, you're yeah. going to, you want to know where the ball is going to go and can you make plays in the clutch. And so when I see it in the end, it's usually the guys – to me, the, the game of football is a passing game, okay? Sure. So it's, it's – you got to – and by saying that, like, games are won on third down. They're one in the red zone. They're one in two-minute situations. So – it's a passing game. Obviously, you need to run the ball, protect the ball, those kind of quick decisions. They're accurate with the ball. Get the ball out of the hands to the playmakers. They're the ones that win the game in the end. They're not as exciting. So a guy like – I have all the respect in the world for a guy like Lamar Jackson. All the respect. It's, he's unbelievable to watch. But And so defense coordinators, they probably – how are we going to stop this guy? you got to stop the run and the pass. But when they've watched Tom Brady, they're like, okay, guy just – he steps back. He makes a five-step drop. He – gets it out of his hands. It's like, it's kind of boring to watch and it is successful over time. Sure. And that's what I think you want is consistency. 
uh, for me, and I'm biased because I'm a pocket guy and just watching those guys. But in the end, I think it's the guys that can pass the ball and make great decision making that are great decision makers. For sure. And that's, you know, kicking it to the Patriots side of it. That's where I feel like, I mean, it's not that I want to put a knock on them from the day they signed it, but when the Patriots went through their process, Brady going down to Tampa and they brought in Cam Newton, I think that was the first thing I noticed really being able to see Cam Newton up front in front of me instead of being on the Panthers where he was. Um, you could just tell the progressions of him going through what he was, was just nowhere near as clear as Brady. And it was kind of those things where Brady could boom, boom out. And it's, and, you know, like you said, it's boring, it, but it's, it's what's consistent at the end of the day. And it's what gets them to where they were going every single season. And most of the seasons I'll say that, and uh, you know, your best probably, most of the seasons that they were doing their best, they probably looked the most boring on offense because it was Wes Welker. It was Troy Brown, David Patton, you know, uh, Edelman, whoever, whatever guy he made shift to do the guy or be the job and be the safety blanket. That was the guy that was really that crucial to them winning, for sure. No doubt. No doubt. Uh, just to wrap it up, Brad, um, we know you can talk a little bit about your family life and post-retirement, but you want to give me an opportunity to speak on any uh, hobbies you got going on or any uh, charities that you want to speak on behalf of? Yeah, yeah. I'm involved with, with two charities. One's that they're both in Asheville, North Carolina. One's the Evelyn Foundation, and the other is Beyond All Borders. And I've been with these for over 20 years now, and it's about helping others that, that need help. There's not a lot of red tape. The money goes directly to people whatever facet it needs to be to help these people. So um, I'm proud to say that. And I've, I've obviously got part of these uh, TikTok. I've been making all these kind of trick shots and all this kind of thing. And my tagline is big, bad, Brad 14. And, and I kind of mimic the camera and all those kind of things, but we got into selling a lot of paraphernalia and all that kind of and apparel and all those kind of things. So it get all the money uh, is cafepress.com backslash uh, big, bad, Brad 14, all the money, it goes directly to beyond our borders and, that's kind of what that's about. But I, I, help, I love helping uh, coach kids, coaching high school ball, and uh, and then obviously making these, you know, helping out these charities. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, we've always been the same way. We, we, we're no big name or nothing, but anything we ever do, try and push out stuff and help other people do what we can, you know, communities and whatnot, local. I'm a farm kid myself, so, you know, us, our family selling meat, doing what we do. You know, it's, it's a big thing to be able to give back and do what you can for people, especially when you've been given so much. Um, when some people obviously as well have so little to give and still will give no matter what. So that's a huge thing uh, in this world. And I think a lot of people need to get back on that track. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, no man, I, I don't know what else to say, but say thank you because this honestly has been uh, a great interview. Uh, like I said before, I love the backdrop. You can't not show it off because you're right. a Super Bowl right. champion and, and you, like I said, you broke through that mold and you made a hell of a career out of something that some people would have had, what, maybe two, three weeks in the system and then, they, then they're back home or slinging burgers at McDonald's or something. So you made it. it and uh, like yep. we said before, we, we hope and pray that your sons both are, you know, big up and get in that league soon and can do damage just like you did as well. Yep. I appreciate it, guys. Thank you all for reaching out. Enjoy being on your show. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much. You have a great day. Everybody all right, man. See you guys. Easy. That's the show Very for y'all. Have a good right, one. See you guys. Thank you.